The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. And our show today, we're going to be talking about uh, recovery communities, which um, hopefully with the new advantages of, of the Affordable Care Act and our um, health care transitioning from an illness model to more of a, a recovery-oriented model of care, um, recovery communities will become more the norm and less of the, of the unique experience for people that have um, substance use disorders and, to a certain extent, mental health disorders. If we think about the deinstitutionalization, the spirit of that that happened in the early 1960s, it was really about having people come back into the community. And essentially what we created were systems of care that focused on illness and really replicated someone's experience in terms of treatment, similar to what they may have gotten in um, a psychiatric hospital at the time. And um, the nice thing about or the unique thing about substance use disorders is it was more, it's always been more consumer driven. And so the concept of recovery has always been a significant part of um, of, of someone having a substance use disorder, recovery is expected and it's encouraged and there's a lot built to support it. But we have new opportunities to, to develop um, communities of recovery and uh, our guest today is a director of one of those communities of recovery. Um, these communities occur all around the country. Um, Cheryl's going to be talking to us about her experience in Connecticut and New Hampshire, but I want folks to know that um, this is a national um, movement. It's just not uh, local to New England. And I'd like to introduce our guest today. Um, she has a wide range of experience in developing community recoveries. Her name is Cheryl Peccapelli, and she is a woman in long-term recovery from alcohol and other drugs for 25-plus years. She joined Hope for New Hampshire Recovery as Executive Director in September 2014. She comes to uh, New Hampshire from Connecticut, where she worked as a Program Manager for Recovery Housing, Director of Operations, and the Director of Recovery Services at a Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery, which is CCAR, from 2004 to 2012. I think it's really important for everybody to know that CCAR was one of the first, um, was, Connecticut was in the first round of grants to develop um, peer support services, and I think CCAR has been probably the most successful 
um, grantee of, of, of all the states that um, received that grant. So, um, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. And before I ramble on more, um, I'd like you to talk to a little bit to our um, audience about this whole concept. What is a recovery community and how is that different from a 12-step community? Well, thank you um, for having me on, Mary. Um, you're my the introduction you gave are all my little talking points, so you covered everything. But um, a recovery community is it just takes like what occurs in a twelve step room, just you know one step further or maybe two steps further, where we can um, reach our hand right out from the treatment community to try to help people get over that bridge into actual long-term or sustained recovery. So by doing things like having programs like a telephone recovery support where instead of discharging your clients and telling them to go to a 12-step meeting and they get phone numbers when they get there and then they never call because they're afraid to call, Hope or other recovery community agencies across the country are doing a service called telephone support where when their clients discharge from outpatient or inpatient type services, they sign up to receive a telephone call from a peer. And at a recovery community center, um, people in recovery, all different stages of recovery, would um, give a, make an outbound call to say, hey, how are you doing today? How's your recovery going? Is there anything we can help you with? And that connection early in recovery is so important. Um, are recovery communities just for, I mean, do it just consist of people in recovery or are family members or other members of the community invited into this? All members of the community would be invited in, family members, people who know people either in recovery or struggling with addiction, um, people in the community, probation officers, parole officers, um, community agencies are all welcome to come to any kind of recovery community meeting, setting, everything is all-inclusive. And we also don't, um, we support any pathway to recovery. So it doesn't matter if you're on some kind of Medicaid-assisted treatment, methadone or buprenorphine, anything like that, everybody is welcome. What has been the biggest obstacle in developing um, these communities from your experience? Well, there's a lot of support for developing the communities and, you know, everybody sees the significant need for that, but um, trying to get these financed is um, a significant hurdle that needs to be overcome. Finances in terms of um, funding the telephone lines or... Funding uh, the actual bricks and mortar building and the staffing of that because, you know, you spoke a little bit about, um, you know, Medicaid funding. None of these services are covered at this time under Medicaid. So everything, um, it has to be done, you know, through private donations or state contracts. And um, right now there's not a whole lot of, 
extra money around in our economy to do these kinds of things. But the reality is every penny that you spend on this saves money down the road and people not needing to go back into treatment. What is the um, success rate or the, what are the outcomes for recovery communities, like um, someplace like Connecticut where it's well-established? Well, I haven't been in Connecticut for the last uh, three and a half years, so I couldn't really um, give you too many statistics on that. But I do know that in Connecticut, they were seeing, you know, 15,000 unique visitors a year in their recovery community centers, and their telephone recovery support program had... uh, I believe 80% of the people who had enrolled for over 12 weeks were still in recovery after 12 weeks. So um, I don't have all that data at the because I haven't been there in a long time, but all the programs that they ran in Connecticut were highly successful in um, keeping people out of treatment or maybe somebody relapsed because this uh, disease that, we have is um, a relapsing condition, just as diabetes is, and someone, you know, eats a donut and they end up back in the emergency room. But by having that um, telephone program, you can usually catch people before they get too far down the road. So maybe all they need to do is go back to a meeting. They don't necessarily continue to use alcohol or drugs until they end up back in an emergency department setting. So there's a huge cost savings in that. It seems um, kind of ironic that the federal government has invested a lot of money in developing um, recovery-oriented communities and uh, peer-driven communities as well that um, it hasn't trickled down through the state. Yeah, I I guess, you know, it's a slow process that um and they only have I know that the last time that I considered applying for a federal grant there were five grants being awarded and there was over four hundred people applying. So the states definitely know that there's a need for it, but the competition for those five little grants is um extremely fierce. So they yeah, might be, um, you know, saying that there's money for it and it's important, it, but nef- definitely not at the level of the need. Um, from your perspective, what do you think is the major advantage to um, a community investing in or in someplace like Hope for New Hampshire Recovery or uh, Recovery Drop-In Center? What, what does the community um, benefit? Well. The benefit would be their community would be healthier if there were more people in recovery. And, you know, one thing I just want to point out, it wouldn't really be a drop-in center as much as there would be, you know, programming throughout the day for people that, you know, need help with getting a job. So we would have um, seminars on how to interview and how to do your resume and how to open a bank account and, you know, how, how to get into um, safe and affordable housing. What options do you have? But it definitely won't be a place that, you know, people can just hang out. It's going to be about, you know, making your life better and 
we'll have yoga and doing, you know, mind, body, and spirit type events and social activities. But there'll be programming every day throughout the day for people to um, get better. I think, um, you know, one of the things I think for any chronic illness, but especially for people with substance use disorders or mental health, the idea of belonging and the idea of of having um, continuous support is what really helps them manage their, both of their illnesses. And, you know, I don't know of anybody that has a chronic illness that survives in a vacuum. And while AA is... Um, certainly has serves a, a vital function for a lot of people. Um, it's, it's, AA doesn't help with the practical stuff that you're talking about that, that sometimes really impedes people from getting their recovery, how to, how to get a job, how to apply for benefits, how to find a primary care physician, and all of those essential living skills that you don't necessarily develop when you've spent a good part of your adolescence and early adult years um, in the throes of either substance use disorder or mental illness. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like, and you know, I used the example of uh, diabetes before because it's such a, it has such parallels. Where if you showed up in your doctor's office or in the emergency department with the diabetes, you would be discharged with a whole all kinds of pamphlets on what you can do and food support groups and cooking classes and all types of things to support you in managing your diabetes. And I think that that's where we need to get to, to support people to enter into recovery. So, you know, treatment starts it. It initiates the recovery. It teaches them, you know, what's going on, how um, they can start to manage this, that talks about 12-step groups, and then um, a recovery community center would be the final touch to that. Um, And we'll be right back after this commercial break to talk more about um, community recovery groups um, with Cheryl. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Healthcare professionals spend a lot of time keeping the rest of us from losing it, getting too stressed out, and from burning out. But who helps the healthcare professional from avoiding the same things? A professional coach can help you avoid burnout and by doing so lead a healthier life. Tune in to Dr. Raji Menon's Stress Busters Corner. We're here to help those who help everyone else. We help them avoid burnout themselves. Tune in every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to our show. Um, today we're talking with Cheryl Pacapelli, who is a woman in long-term recovery from alcohol and other drugs for 25-plus years. She is the executive director for Hope for New Hampshire Recovery, which is a grassroots alliance of people in recovery, their families and friends, and concerned members of the community to help support um, you know, people in recovery and to help keep people out of institutions and in their homes. And I I really think, Cheryl, we were talking during the break, um, I applaud you for identifying yourself as a woman in long-term recovery because I don't hear that very often. What I often hear is um, I am an alcoholic or, or I'm a recovering alcoholic or drug addict, which is a much different message than a woman in long-term recovery. And I just wondering if if we could talk about that for a few minutes. Yeah, we certainly can. And um, part of that, you know, the way I introduce myself now came from uh, watching a movie, a documentary film um, called The Anonymous People that was uh, directed by Greg Williams, who is a person actually in recovery from Connecticut. And when I was part of the filming of that movie when I was at Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery. So I watched that whole film, like, come together. And what I saw then was the importance of people being able to see the other side of addiction and I could clearly see that when I said, my name is Cheryl and I'm an addict, was much different feel than when I said, my name is Cheryl and I'm a woman in long-term recovery for 25 plus years. That had a lot more hope to it. And it also helps change the public perception of what an alcoholic or an addict looks like. Because when we do get treatment and services, we do get well. And there's over 23 million Americans in long-term recovery. So imagine if even half of those people were stood up and said that I'm a person in recovery, how the um, public perception and then public policy could change to help to fund programs to allow people to get into long-term sustained recovery. You know, uh, this is a topic that, um, that, you know, we've been talking about um, in a lot of different arenas about the, the stigma and discrimination that people in recovery are exposed to. Some, some of the worst is really from the treatment industry, but, um, you know, the differentiation between identifying yourself as a person along term recovery is much different than when somebody identifies himself as an alcoholic or a drug addict because they're you know the media has so um, has such pejorative 
images of, of people who have um, who are in the throes of their addiction or their alcoholism, and and I think that that's really important. That um, it's much easier to stand up and say, "I'm a person in recovery." And have somebody res- have that res- resonate with someone because oftentimes, as you were saying, um, we have family members that may have diabetes or have had episodes of cancer, and we can identify with that. You know, that wow, in recovery, yeah, I get that. You know, and, right. and I just think that little shift in language is vital to um, ending what really is discrimination when it comes to treatment and job opportunities and education that people experience. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, people that are in recovery can start to, like, use the tools and the things that they learn in recovery as an opportunity for when they're having a job interview that they can talk about, you know, I learned how to be responsible and take commitments and show up on time and do the next right thing. And that's what I'm going to bring as an employee to your organization and the gratitude for having this job. So taking those principles that people learn in recovery and trying to help them to see how they can be used outside of a 12-step program to build their lives into a better life is part of what a recovery community organization does also. It also... um provides advocacy too, doesn't it? I mean, isn't part of one of the things that your organization does is help train people how to advocate on we with do. Their we, local we and state and national lawmakers? We do. We uh, provide a training on uh, the power of telling your story. And that training, actually, we'll have one coming up if you're local to New Hampshire on uh, March 3rd in Concord. But that training is a Faces and Voices of Recovery training, which is the national um, organization of recovery community organizations. And um, that training is about learning how to shift that language so that when you tell your story to a legislative body to try to change public policy or in support for funding or in um, not wanting a alcohol billboards around that you can tell your story with the most impact. So we host that we have that training for both family members of people in recovery and for people in recovery at this we have it at the same time. So it's a great dynamic that occurs during the training where family members and people in recovery help each other to draft that story. You know, um, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill have um, been around, I don't know, maybe for 30 years or 40 years now, and they're a very powerful lobbying group for folks that have mental illness. When HIV was first prolific in our country in the 1980s, the LGBTQ community um, really came together and said, you know, this is affecting our community. We want treatment. We deserve treatment. And we want research, and we deserve research. And as a result, today, somebody who's diagnosed with HIV, there's there's a whole new host of medications. There's treatments that are can practically bring your blood meter down to zero. But yet we've, we don't have the same in, in the community for people that have substance use disorders. Why, why don't people stand up and 
and say, we need this, we want this, we deserve this. Yeah, well, I think that it still, it all goes back to the stigma associated with it. A lot of times family members don't want to admit that their child even has a problem, but yet what I know for myself, what I find is that by the more people I tell that I am in recovery, the more people reach out to me for help. That a family member will come up to me at some meeting and say, gee, you know, whisper, my son really needs help or needs treatment. Can you help them? So by talking about it more, and I remember 25 years ago, you couldn't say breast cancer in the same word, and now, you know, there's national organizations and breast cancer rallies, and, you know, now we call it breast care, not breast cancer, and um, breast care centers, so I think that we're on the right road, and um, we do a lot of advocacy here in New Hampshire for that, and... We have a huge rally as part of, you know, SAMHSA's National Recovery Month, and um, we participate in all of that so that we can bring that, raise that bar up and let people start screaming that this is not okay. Can you imagine if you brought your 16-year-old son to the hospital and he was diagnosed with cancer and they told you, you know, call back every day for the next six weeks and uh, we'll let you know when we can start treating him. And if you don't call him one day, we're going to put you to the bottom of the list. People would be outraged. Oh, and there'd be lawsuits all over the place. place. Right, but that's what goes on here today across the country. So, um, so by these recovery community centers, you know, encouraging people in recovery and long-term recovery to stand up and make their voice be heard, I believe, like, in the next 10 to 15 years, you will see public policy change and the way that addiction is treated when we are um, in the hospital or in the emergency room so that people can get the care that they need so they can and will recover. Um, what do you think the result of um, the, the 12 traditions in AA has to do with people not standing up as well? Do you think that plays a, a role? I do. I think it plays somewhat of a role, but... If you'll notice, I haven't broken any tradition of AA or NA. As far as this interview is concerned, I'm just a person in recovery. So part of the language training is talking about how to do advocacy with anonymity so that you can advocate for recovery and for treatment services and prevention services without necessarily um, violating any traditions of any 12-step program you might belong to. Well, and I, it, I always uh, think it's ironic because Bill Wilson, one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, tef- testified before Congress. <laughs> so you can't yep. get much and, more um, public than that. Exactly. And in the anonymous people, it talk, shows all, there were many people that testified before Congress back then. And uh, there were senators that were open about their recovery. And um, today, you know, the Obama's drugs are is um, Mr., I think it's Botticelli, is a yep. person in long-term recovery also. So all those things are helping to break down the barriers 
that will allow people to feel more comfortable in talking about their recovery. Yeah, um, it's exciting times, but it's also a time where, as you said before, you're competing for um, a multiple public dollars um, in a time where, uh, you know, and certainly like in New, New Hampshire, Florida, we don't have state income tax. So um, it must make it challenging for you. Yeah, this is a very challenging state in um as that goes, in Connecticut, they do have a state income tax, so there's a lot of programs that are great programs that are funded through the state and um, able to help a lot of people. So in New Hampshire, though, we do have an alcohol fund that, if fully funded, like legislatively is supposed to, would pay for all of this. But... um, it usually doesn't get funded all the way. So hopefully this year they will at least, you know, partially fund that alcohol fund to be able to um, help pay for some treatment services and uh, recovery support. And we'll be right back after this commercial. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Fitness is important to keep your body in tip-top shape now and aging gracefully for the future. The Fitness Momentum Show with Coach Michael Merlino is designed to be your guide to fitness and running, whether you're a beginner or ready to run your next marathon. By paying attention to and following the tips offered by Michael and his guests, you'll be able to essentially be your own trainer. Get the most out of your fitness regimen and tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Back to one hour at a time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Cheryl Pacapelli, who is the executive director for Hope for New Hampshire Recovery, which is an organization that is um, 
trying to build uh, a recovery community for uh, that would provide job training and assistance and housing assistance and um, an opportunity for people to learn new skills and have a sober support, social support. Social Sober Support, which is a hard one to say, um, in New Hampshire. And these community centers are all around the country. And we're using New Hampshire because we both live here as an example. But um, before we went to break, Cheryl talked about how at one point there were a number of senators and other people that testified before Congress about their own recovery. And for all of you, i uh, give you a little history lesson here. Um, in the early 1970s, um, Senator Howard Hughes from Iowa was a senator who really um, was a champion of developing treatment for people with alcoholism and, and drug abuse. And he was in recovery himself, and he's the one who who led the, who created the bill and got it passed to create the National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And as a result of Senator Hughes' effort, um, there was a lot of money that became available for states to develop their own system of care for people with substance use disorders because up until that point, to be publicly intoxicated was a crime and you went into the quote-unquote drug tank or the county farm and you kind of slept it off and got back into, the, into your cycle of addiction. Um, in order to qualify for federal funds, states had to decriminalize alcoholism and then take this money to develop um, detox centers and rehabs and halfway houses and, and other types of, of care uh, treatment programs for folks. So states decided to decriminalize in their own time. New York State decriminalized, I think, in 73. I'm sure Connecticut decree, uh, decriminalized early. So they had all this federal money that came into them to develop the infrastructure for treatment. New Hampshire didn't decriminalize until 1980. So that was probably seven or eight years they they were out of the money loop for developing programs. In 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected, and he created a block grant system. So all of the direct funding no longer happened between um, a treatment center and the federal government. The, the block grants created a middleman, if you would, and that would be the state. So the money would come to the state, and the state would determine who got the contracts and who didn't, which is okay, but the block grants are, are based on this very complicated um, formula that has to do with the number of manufacturing jobs in your state, your population, and a couple other things. So as you might guess, States like California, Texas, Florida, um, New York, probably Connecticut at the time were the biggest manufacturing states. So they drew, they were able to draw down the most money from the feds for these block grants. And this is for mental health and substance abuse. New Hampshire is a rural state, does not have that many, um, manufacturing jobs in comparison to other states. So not only did, did New Hampshire decriminalize late in the game, but by the time they did decriminalize it, the pool of funds were very limited. So in New Hampshire, we, you know, we have on our bumper plates, live free or die, and that basically is the mentality for, for most things here. But we, we do not have a very robust system of care for people with substance use disorders. And I applaud Cheryl for for wanting to try to make a, an alternative for people, um, which is much 
uh, needed, and and certainly folks d- deserve this. And and this has worked in other states and and worked beautifully. So um, so so that's your history lesson for today. And um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, politics plays a big role in all of this. And you know, this is probably one of the most political diseases that there there is and that there ever was. We we jail people. We criminalize this this illness. Um, we have to fight. Uh, we had to advocate for money to get treatment. And, um, you know, that on top of everything else that people have to do just to get sober is um, daunting, I think. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing what the cost to uh, New Hampshire is. And this is just, this is a small state comparatively. And um, right. in New Hampshire alone, it was, uh, it costs the state $1.15 billion in lost worker productivity and absenteeism for local businesses. That's a huge number that if some of that, some money could be spent on doing treatment, recovery supports, then maybe we wouldn't have that high of a number in, uh, for our local businesses to have to try to eat. And for those of you who've never been to New Hampshire, we have a state-funded um, liquor stores, which is common in a lot of states, but we have liquor stores on our major highways, so you can come to New Hampshire, go to the rest area in these beautiful, massive liquor stores and buy your liquor. Oh, we so do a great job at selling liquor in New Hampshire. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah we do. Yeah. hmm so, um, for those of you who are out there thinking that your state has its challenges, just be um, be heartened. You're not alone. Um, every state has their challenges, which makes, I think, these recovery communities all the more important. Um, can you describe a couple? I, I was on your website, and I know there are other things, other resources you provide for folks um, in terms of education and training as well. Right, so um, coming up in on March 3rd, we have a training on the power of telling your story, which is an advocacy training where we partner with an organization called New Futures, which is the advocacy political arm in up in New Hampshire for prevention, treatment, and recovery support services. They do a lot of work over there at the legislature for us. And um, so we do a two-part training, one on, you know, talk about what a bill is and how it goes through our legislature here in New Hampshire and when the best times to testify are. And then the second half of the training is for people to um, actually write down their story. What would their story be? And we always use a bill that's active right now. So how would you tell your story as it relates to whatever a bill is that's, you know, currently on the floor? So that training is coming up on March 3rd, and we're, we're also doing that three other times during the year, and those dates will be on our website soon. And then we have a Recovery Coach Academy training. It's, uh, for, it's a week-long training, which starts on March 23rd through the 27th. And that uh, training will be, you know, the first step in becoming a peer recovery coach. So you can... Um, work at a recovery community center or some treatment organizations are starting to hire recovery coaches. 
So um, when you're in treatment, maybe your counselor might be in recovery but doesn't actively disclose that they're in recovery for whatever the reasons are with their employment, but a recovery coach would actively disclose that they're in recovery and be able to help that person negotiate both treatment, early recovery, once they get out of treatment, looking for services or signing up for benefits that they might be eligible for to help them be able to restart their life. Um, are there other treatments or other trainings as well for folks? Um, are there any activities that people... Well, we have, on our website, we have a link for different resources that are recovery-related. So we have somebody who's a member of HOPE as a volunteer doing a yoga and 12-step recovery. So links to her site are all there. And there's also all kinds of different seminars and Coalition meetings throughout the state that are um, focusing on, you know, the heroin epidemic and how we can help and what communities can do, and um, links to those are on our site also. And that website is hopefornewhampshirerecovery.org. And if somebody's in another state, how would they find their recovery community organization? How would they go about finding it? The best way is to go to facesandvoicesofrecovery.org or just Google Faces and Voices of Recovery and they have a link on their site to all the other, all the, I believe there's over 300 recovery community organizations listed with them across the country. What made you decide to get involved in this? It was a kind of an interesting, you know, journey to that. I was a person in recovery for about 15 or 16 years, and I got involved in uh, recovery housing in Connecticut. And through that, CCAR called me to talk about what recovery house owners, what their clients needed. So I volunteered for them for a while, and then I... Um, that was my first introduction into what a recovery community organization was. And um, I just loved it. I thought it was so needed and, you know, it was another place to get involved and um, feel like you were um, having an impact on what was happening in your local community and how you could help and do things. And uh, so I volunteered for them for a couple of years and then I ultimately got hired and like you had mentioned earlier, they were one of the first eight grantees that got a uh, recovery support services grant. And um, they've, they've received that grant for either eight or 12 years and were able to build a wonderful recovery community organization in Connecticut that's uh, statewide and has a huge impact on uh, the work that gets done in Connecticut. Well, weren't they one of the founders of the first run for recovery to um, the road race? Oh, we did a, a recovery walks. Walk. Connecticut okay. was one of the first ever walks yeah. for recovery. They've been doing it, I think, last year was their 15th year. So um, they're in their 16th year this year, and um, New Hampshire's in their second 
year. We'll be having a rally in September as part of National Recovery Month, which is a SAMHSA, which is Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Agency, part of uh, the federal agency that um, helps with recovery support services. So they have uh, September as National Recovery Month, and all the events across the country are located on their website under um, National Recovery Month. So you can find everything for next year listed there. And I will be right back after this commercial um, to learn more about recovery organizations and communities and to learn more about how you can become involved. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Good childhood mental health is critically important. Early patterns of emotions and thinking shape children's behavior from preschool into the teen years and beyond. But understanding young kids can be a challenge. Tune in to Child Psych Central. Discover the kid brain with Dr. Beth Onafrak. Each week, we will reveal how brain function and child development drive young children's daily behavior. Listen every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. It's one of the best things that you can do as a parent. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Our guest is Cheryl Pacapelli, who is Executive Director of Hope for New Hampshire Recovery, which is a grassroots alliance of people in recovery, their families and friends, and concerned members of the community. And the goal is to be able to, for all of our recovery communities, regardless of where they are, is to provide support services that are community-based and that will um, help people you know, focus on wellness and recovery as opposed to illness. And I and I just think it's so important for everybody listening to understand that um, recovery happens, and, and recovery happens from addiction a lot more frequently than we think it does. And that, you know, one slip 
or one drink doesn't constitute um, a massive relapse and that just like anybody with a chronic illness can have an exacerbation of symptoms, get the treatment they need, and then they're right back in recovery. So, um, you know, I I really think um, that this is more than shame and stigma. This is about human rights and, and and civil rights. Um, people who have addictive disorders. I know in Florida, um, you know, if you commit a crime, certain crimes when you're in the throes of your addiction, which frequently people do, then that's held against you 25 years later if you go to get a job in Florida and things come up on your background check. Um, Massachusetts had that, but they developed a system of waivers where people that had sustained recovery could um, can, can get a waiver demonstrating that for the last however many years they've been um, sober and a, and a productive member of um, society. Uh, you know, there, there's so much discrimination that happens. As, as Cheryl was saying, if you have a 16-year-old who needs to call every day for four weeks to get a bed because they need treatment for alcohol abuse or addiction, that's discrimination. That that's nothing other than discrimination. No no other illness has to wait like that. And and it's it's time we started, I think, rephrasing this from shame and stigma to discrimination. And um people this is a human rights issue. People are dying all the time because of bad policy, because of um People, uh, unlike Cheryl, who's open to being being in recovery, people being wanting to be anonymous, and um, all the misperceptions that abound in our community because we have this stereotype of what a person with an alcohol addiction is or we have a stereotype of what a heroin addict is. Um, Most people in the Northeast who develop heroin addiction do so because they were started on oxycodone for a medical issue and because of the really poor prescribing practices of oxycodone, um, they become addicted, the prescription runs out, and then they turn to heroin because it's cheaper and readily available. So um, there's so much here that needs to get addressed. And and I applaud Cheryl and others who are out in the community and um, are willing to say, you know, um, I'm in recovery and, and recovery happens. So... Um, you know, Cheryl, I think that, um, you know, we, we haven't really talked a lot about peers, but um, what is the power of having a peer as opposed to a family member or a, a, just a, a friend? What's the magic in that? Well, I don't think there's anything like sitting down and talking to someone that has lived experience. They're not somebody who, um, you know... I laid in that same ER bed that you're laying in. I know how you feel. I know how devastating it is. I can empathize with you. And then the biggest part is I can tell you what I did. This is what worked for me. You're free to try that. Maybe it will work for you. More than somebody handing you a schedule to a 12-step meeting and saying, here, This is what you should do. And that's it. Like, I can talk specifically about how afraid I was to walk into my first 12-step meeting, how petrified I was to walk in there, but how at home I felt once I was there. And 
I don't think that you can beat that with anything. So that's uh, what, in a nutshell, what uh, peer-to-peer support does is um, somebody with lived experience can help another person with lived experience walk through that fear to get themselves to get well. And it also gives them hope that, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm not just telling you you can do it. I did it too. So I think that's the value of uh, peer work. You had mentioned the movie The Anonymous People. Where can people find that if they want to view it? Well, it's actually available on Netflix. And so anybody can do an instant download on Netflix. And you can, um, for anybody who's in New Hampshire, we host screenings throughout um, the state of New Hampshire. We were just at Plymouth State College. We did a screening where we had Dwight Davis and a former NBA player who's in recovery that speaks openly about his recovery was the guest speaker there prior to the showing of the anonymous people. So um, we'll be hosting those again throughout the year, more than likely after spring comes. Can the snow melt? (laughs) Will it ever ever melt? (laughs) I know. Then it's, I guess it gets to be mud season up here. So, but then shortly after we have summer. So that's what I'm right. looking forward to. Um, and once again, phasesandvoicesofrecovery.org is the website if people want to find out where their local recovery community centers are. Absolutely. Yep. Faces and Voices of Recovery. All the recovery community organizations. There's a link to a listing of all of the 300, over 300 throughout the country. And then there's contact information for each of the local sites with names, phone numbers, and websites. And how, can you once again share who is eligible to join? Um, a recovery community, and how would they go about letting themselves be known as they want to support a recovery community? Well, nationally, you should do it through the Faces and Voices website and then contact your local recovery community organization. Here in New Hampshire, you can do it by becoming a member of Hope for New Hampshire Recovery, and what that does is put you on our mailing list and let you know what events and things that are upcoming. We'll keep you posted on uh, when we're going to be able to open our first recovery community center, and you can uh, find different ways to get involved, different volunteer opportunities as such. So so what overall, um, if there's one thing that people should take away from um, this hour, what should it be? Well, I would say that um, treatment works and recovery support services are needed to close the loop so that if we do get someone into treatment, which is so hard to do, that once we get them there, that we actually hold our hand out and allow them to have a recovery support service to allow them the opportunity to be able to be in long-term sustained recovery. And that's a wonderful note to end our show today. Thank you, Cheryl, for being our guest. Thank you for having me, Mary. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to get to talk to you as well. I hope everyone listening has a great week and that you're somewhere warm and sunny. Um, Have a good week, everybody. (laughs) 
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.